Okay. Let's just take a minute to pray for that right now. How about we just do that? All right. Lord, we lift this concern up to you. Lord, we know that you know Lee and that you know right where he is at, Lord. And we just pray most of all for his salvation, Lord. We pray for an encounter with you, an encounter with your spirit, Lord, that breaks through all of those obstacles, all of those walls that are built up inside of him, Lord. We pray for you to break through those, Lord, that he would not harden his heart when he hears your voice, Lord, but that in these moments he would turn to you, Lord. And we just pray in this situation, Lord, that your will would be done. And we pray, Lord, for Leanne. We pray for your comfort for her, for your peace for her, Lord. We pray that you would show yourself mighty and show yourself true to her in all of these situations, Lord. And we just pray for her, Lord, that she would come to know you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was saying, I am still perfecting my slide making, and so the font is kind of small, and um, I promise I'll get better at putting less on slides. So today, we are going to talk a little bit about something that's a segue from what I shared about last time. If you remember, it's probably been about a month ago, um, I talked a little bit in my last sermon about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And that got me thinking, what were Christ's sufferings? I mean, humanity, people have a lot to say about suffering. We talk about suffering all the time. We see it all the time. But what were Christ's sufferings? That got me thinking. And one of them was temptation. Have you ever thought of one of Christ's sufferings as being temptation? And that we experience temptation too, that we go through that as well? Jesus reminds the disciples that the servant isn't above the master. And if the world hated him, it would hate them too. And I think that this also applies to our sufferings. The things that Jesus suffered, we're not above those, and we're going to experience those as well. So we're going to talk about temptation today. It should be interesting. Um, <clears throat> so as I usually start out, I often will start out by studying the word that I'm going to talk about. I always study the word, word, the Bible, but I'll do a word study about a specific word. So this got me looking into the word tempted and tempt. And I found things that I was really surprised by. A lot of times when I do a word study, words just mean what you think they mean. Sometimes there's not anything deeper or, you know, some big revelation to happen there. But that was not the case with the word tempted. It is very complex. And this word, um, context alone, determines what the specific implication of this word is. So you have to look at everything around the word to determine exactly how it's implied and how it should be defined in that situation, which is just so fun to study. It's really neat to look into. So Strong's number for tempted is 3985, and it means, the definition is, to make proof of, to attempt, test, or tempt. So there's a lot of words there. I mean, think about the connotation between the words test and tempt. I talked to Joe about this, and I'm like, I feel very differently about those two words. Testing and tempting, I mean, they have a different feel to them. But they're both all wrapped up in this one Greek word, which is parazo. 
So there was a, a great little section here from Strong that I'm just going to quote. And it says, There is nothing in this word that requires it to refer to a trial given with the intention of entangling the person in sin. It can mean either. It can mean either. And context alone determines which sense is intended or whether both are occurring simultaneously. Predominantly, though not exclusively, the sense of this word is that this testing will cause its recipient to appear as what they have always been. Isn't that interesting? This particular word, which is translated differently in different translations, it can mean test, it can mean tempt, it's primarily meant to reveal the recipient as what it has always been. So it's like proving bread, right? You want to make sure that your yeast is working. You let it bubble up, and then you mix in the flour, and you proof it. You put it in a circumstance or a situation where what is inside of that bread is going to show itself. It's going to rise, and we're going to see what has been there the whole time. That's kind of what I get out of it as far as an example goes. So I thought it would be advantageous since this word is determined by context to go through some of the different senses of the word. The negative senses, which is more like what we would think of as temptation, and the positive sense, which is more of what we would think of as tests or trials. So we'll start with the negative ones. These examples would be like Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, which says, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. That word occurs in that context a lot. A lot of times the religious authorities of Jesus' day would come to him and try to trip him up. They would test him in that way. So in this context, we can see that this is negative. And the same is true for Matthew 22, verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? See how the word is translated slightly different there? It's trap. But it's the same thing. It's that negative sense. They're trying to trip him up. Other translations, they say, why are you testing me? Or even, why are you tempting me? I mean, do you see? We've got tempt, we've got test, we've got these different words, but they all go back to this one Greek word. It's very, very interesting. So it's very important to pay attention to the context here. And then we see in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, the same negative sense of temptation. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted, which, let me just segue here for a second. Cannot be tempted is a different word. Those three English words are one Greek word that is only used one time in the New Testament, and it is right here. And it's a description of God as being untemptable, untried by evil. It is an impossibility for him to be tempted away, drawn away by evil. And it's so evident that there's one word that explains that. So that's a different word. I just wanted to tell you that. But God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So can you see how tempt in that particular context is negative? Does that make sense? And then moving on, 
um, we look at some positive examples that would be more of what we would think of as tests or trials. Um, Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 28, he's talking to the disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. He's talking here about his life, the life that he lived, the things that he had to go through to be the perfect atoning sacrifice. And so this is in a positive sense of those trials. And in James 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Can you see that is positive? That's, that is spoken of in a very positive light. The context around it tells us that. And this last one here I find very interesting because if you remember up here where I read, context determines whether it's positive or negative or whether two simultaneous things are happening at the same time. This would be an example of that simultaneous sense, which is Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, which says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There was a purpose behind this. He was led there by the Spirit. That sounds like a good thing. He had to overcome the devil. That was part of why he was here. He was led there by the Spirit, but the enemy was there for a negative purpose. He wanted to tempt him. He wanted to see if he could get him to fall. Oh, there's so many implications in that for us. Um, The thing to emphasize as we look at these different contexts, at the negative, the positive, and the simultaneous, is the different modes of operation, the different purpose behind these things. And this is a great quote from the HELPS Word Study Guide. It says, Satan tests with the intention and desire that the one being tested may not turn out approved, but reprobate and break down under the test. Satan never proves in order to approve, nor tests that he may accept. That's an important difference. When Satan comes to tempt or to try something, it is never for your benefit, right? He always comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's hoping that you will break down under that test. That is not what God does. God comes and he disciplines, he instructs, and he teaches for our building up and for our benefit. Because he loves us, he knows us. There's such a huge difference. Sometimes to us, it feels the same. It really does feel the same. But the intentions here are completely different. And First Peter um, is all about reminding Christians to persevere in faith while in times of distress. And uh, chapter 5, verses 8 through 9 say, Be sober-minded and alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith and in the knowledge that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. So while we endure the hardships that come because the word tells us that that's going to happen, as we undergo the trials that perfect our character, and that perfect our faith, those things that are going to come. The devil desires that we abandon our hope. He desires that we give up in those hardships, and he desires that we fall into sin. 
These things are happening simultaneously, and we have to be on our guard because he's constantly looking for opportunities to entice us, to draw us away. And as I got to looking into this word and seeing how complex it is and looking at all of this context, and it just made me think of how the complexity of the biblical language reflects the complexity that we experience in these situations. As we're in hardships and distress, as we're undergoing trials and we're tempted and we're tried, we're disciplined, all of those things, it feels incredibly complex to us. It can feel very confusing at times, and that's reflected by this language. There can be a lot going on. I mean, how many conversations have you had? I know I've had a lot where you're in distress, someone else is in distress, and they come to you and they're saying, why is this happening? Did I do something wrong? Am I, is this the enemy attacking me? Do I just live in a world that is subject to decay? And that's why these things are happening. And sometimes in exasperation, we'll even say, is God testing me? (laughs) Am I undergoing some kind of discipline? And the hard part is that there are not simple, generalized answers to those questions. There just are not, because it is layered. There could be multiple of those things going on. And... It's interesting because sometimes God will show us in a particular distress or situation, he'll show us how to dismantle something. He'll, he might show you the how and the why, and by his spirit, he will walk you through totally dismantling something. Other times, you're just in it, and all you can see is just the weakness of your flesh. And you get to learn a deep, deep lesson about the sufficiency of God's grace. And that's important, too. Something that I find incredible that God does is even in those times where he shows you the how and the why, and he shows you how to dismantle it, and he walks you into freedom, you always want to learn something when you're going through something difficult, right? I know I do. I always say, don't let this be in vain. (laughs) I want to learn something. Let me take something away from this that I can use again. So next time I get in this difficult situation, this difficult spot, I look back at the lessons that I've learned before, and I try to reapply them to this. And wouldn't you know it, a lot of times the methodology just won't work. You know, it just doesn't work the same way. And it's because it's dependent on him. It's so dependent on him. It's not dependent on the methodology. It's not dependent on how I walked out of it this last time. But I am learning something very valuable in that moment. And the lesson that I'm learning and that I think that God teaches all of his sons is that he is so much more than the solution to your discomfort. He's so much more than the solution to my discomfort. There is so much more there in those situations than just an escape from whatever afflicts us. And that's just a powerful lesson. It's a life lesson. So I guess I should get to the point today, (laughs) because the point isn't for me to give you a nice, tidy handful of categories and tell you that all of the distress you experience falls into these categories, and here's how you fix it. I can't do that. (laughs) I don't know enough about the world and how things work. That isn't possible for me. But what I do want to do is remind you 
from the Word. That when we are in distress, when we are tempted and undergoing trials, the Word has warnings for us. It has guardrails for us to protect us when we're in that vulnerable spot. And it also has so much encouragement for us when we're in that place that we can overcome, that we don't have to succumb and fall, but that we can overcome like Jesus taught us to. All right, we're going to start with Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 13. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So the first thing that comes to mind in the scripture is in the first sentence, What does the writer of Hebrews refer to this as? He calls it a word of encouragement. This is a word of encouragement to us. So frequently when I read this verse, I take it as a word of scary, as a word of fear and trembling. But he tells us how to receive it. We receive this as a word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. Are you a son? Then you should be encouraged by this. It tells us not to make light. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Make light of. Those three English words go back to one Greek word. And it means to hold in low esteem or neglect or treat with contempt. And discipline is the rearing of a child. The training or the discipline of a child. Helps Word Studies defines it as instruction that trains someone to reach full development or maturity. So if you use those definitions, rearrange the sentence a little bit. It sounds like, do not neglect or treat with contempt the training that brings you to maturity. Wow. That, that is just so loaded with meaning, especially when we apply it to our lives and day-to-day, what we go through, hardships. Do not treat them with contempt. Because it's those that will bring you to maturity. It's that training and discipline that brings you to maturity. And that's what we all want. We all want to come to maturity. And uh, what does it look like to treat something with contempt? Grumbling. That's a big way that we treat things with contempt, is we grumble. I mean, goodness sakes, talk about a word study. Grumbling in the Old Testament. I think there's some lessons to be learned from that. So this speaks of an opportunity to make a choice, to be teachable. We have a choice. We're at a fork in the road. We can be teachable or we can grumble. 
And the best way to go is to always be teachable. And it tells us not only to not make light of the Lord's discipline, but not to lose heart. What does it mean to lose heart? That's when we become so faint that we succumb. And this is when we begin to look for a way out of the discomfort. We look for a way out that makes it easier. And the enemy is waiting for an opportunity to capitalize on us looking outside of God's provision for our comfort. He's looking for that opportunity to jump on that, where we're just scrambling inside of ourselves, looking for any way that we can get out of this uncomfortable position. But God knows us. He sees us. He knows that we're fragile. He sees our frame. He knows what we are. And in his provision, he will make a way for us to bear up under that. He will do it if we trust him. He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't forsake us. We just have to look to him when we're in that position. Because the enemy would love to do it our own way. All right, and then we move into the writer of Hebrews drawing some parallels between human fathers and God. So, we all had human fathers who disciplined us. Have you ever seen a parent that made it a practice to remove all discomfort from the lives of their children? I mean, have you ever seen that? Where a parent just shields their child from all the consequences of their poor choices and from just life's lessons, and they try to make everything comfortable. What happens to that child? What happens? They never grow to maturity. They never come to maturity. And at some point, they're going to find out that they are not, have not been living in reality. And it is going to be a hard lesson. It's going to be a tough one. And that is not the way God treats his children. Sometimes things may be hard. They may go through trials and hardships. But God doesn't shield you from everything. Because like we talked about, you're going to come to maturity through these things. And he has made provision for you to endure and for you to grow and to come to maturity and be perfected in your faith and in your character. So we wouldn't want him to do that anyway. It may sound good, but that is really not what we're after. And he disciplines us for our good, not according to a flawed understanding of what is best, but according to his perfect love and knowledge and his faithfulness to keep us in the palm of his hand no matter what. And he disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness. So getting to the end, the writer says, Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Again, we're faced with two choices. Something is lame. Something is wobbly. We've got two choices. Is it going to be disabled completely or is it going to be healed? We're at another fork in the road. (laughs) So we have to choose to go forward in the healing. That's our choice. So, another encouraging story about temptation from the Word. And this was the first one I thought of when I thought of Jesus. It's when he was led by the Spirit for the purpose of being tempted by Satan and for overcoming that temptation. So here's the setup. Jesus comes to... Uh, Satan comes to Jesus after he's been fasting 40 days and is physically at his most vulnerable point. 
So this is where the enemy is looking for that point of weakness that he can exploit. So he comes to Jesus at this point where he should be most temptable. But what he doesn't realize is that 40 days of fasting may have made Jesus physically weak and hungry, but it also trained him to rule over his flesh, (laughs) which he did not foresee. He did not anticipate that, and he totally lost. And Jesus all that time had been training to overcome his own physical desires that arise from within. And when you train yourself to do that, it is a value to overcome desires that come from without, that come from the outside, that come from Satan trying to tempt you away. If you have mastered your own inner desires, your own flesh, it is much easier to say no to those things. And that's exactly what was happening here. He had trained his heart, Jesus had trained his heart to trust the Father. And his first response to Satan and his temptation says exactly that. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He shows right there what he's been doing in that wilderness fasting. And Satan goes on to try and use scripture against Jesus by misapplying it. And Jesus knows the Father, and he doesn't take the bait, and he refuses to put God to the test. The final blow to the enemy comes in the last response when Satan tries to entice Jesus to worship him. The response to this temptation is, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus had chosen a side. He had chosen a side this whole time, and he made a declaration as to whose side he was on. And he shows us what it all comes down to. It all comes down to that declaration Who am I going to serve? I have picked a side, and I'm going to serve God. And that's the end of the matter. This goes back to what BJ talked about last week. Do you guys remember believing loyalty? That's the believing loyalty he talked about. I'm going to serve God. It doesn't matter what you offer me or what you entice me with, because I've chosen a side and I've made that declaration. So Jesus encountering Satan places him in contrast with Adam and with the Israelites in the wilderness, which is interesting. There's some parallels here. All of Jesus' responses to the enemy in this account were from Deuteronomy, which retells the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, and Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. The way Satan tries to entice Jesus in this account has a lot of parallels and a lot of similarities to the way that he enticed Adam and Eve in the garden. And where all of them failed, it's like Jesus is rewriting history. He's creating something totally new. Where they all failed, where they all fell short, he overcomes. He defeats the enemy in the wilderness. He rewrites the story. So falling and stumbling and failing in the wilderness becomes victory in the wilderness. And that is such a testimony to us. I mean, he shows us how to overcome the enemy, and he had to do it. Hebrews 2, verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's me and you. He's able to help us that are being tempted. And Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I mean, anywhere in that verse does it say, approach the throne of grace with confidence because you're perfect? Because you don't experience temptation and suffering? No, it doesn't. It's because Jesus made a way, because he overcame. And now we get to overcome those situations. And when we need help, which we always do, we get to approach God's throne with confidence. That's an incredible gift. And it's what makes everything for us possible. And if we do stumble and we fall and we don't overcome the temptation and we succumb, we give in, thank God that we don't depend on our own righteousness and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He gave us that as well. Moving on to another section. Now this one has more warning to it. And it kind of factors into all of this because of the word test, which is slightly different here, but there's still a lot of value in this when we talk about temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So there's this word here right at the beginning, We should not test Christ. I've talked about how this first Greek word we talked about can be translated test or tempt. This isn't that word. (laughs) This is a different word. This word test, the King James Version translates this as tempt Christ. We should not tempt Christ as some of them did. This is a different Greek word than the translations of tempt we've looked at so far. This means to put God, to put to proof God's character rather than believe him. It can also mean to test his patience to see how much he will bear. Isn't that just, that's a scary thing to think about. We should not test the patience of Christ to see how much he will bear. (laughs) We don't want to do that. So let's go on and look at the warning and what that looks like. Oh, I want to tell you too, this is the same word, this test is the same word that Jesus quoted in Matthew 4 when he said, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Satan was trying to tell him, throw yourself down. Because even the scripture, even the Psalms say that he's going to lift you up so that you won't strike your heel against a stone. And uh, Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So this is perfectly exemplifies that meaning of this word here. So Paul is telling them, he's talking to the Corinthians here. These are saved believers. He's telling them, heed these warnings. He's warning them to flee from idolatry. Because it seems that some of the Corinthian church was using their liberty in Christ 
to justify different forms of sensuality, mainly in this context, eating and drinking at pagan temples. They were longing for the things they enjoyed before their conversion, that they could, those things could very possibly lead them back into idolatry. And they were using their liberty to justify the things that they wanted to do. They're like, hey, this is, an idol is nothing. I can go and do this. So this is kind of what they're playing around with. And Paul uses the warnings of the Israelites in the desert to tell them, uh, to give them a warning. And let's just look at some of the attitudes that he was using that were um, happening that he's warning them against. This is from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 5. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. They questioned the Lord because they were looking back and preferring the pleasures of Egypt, which was their bondage that they'd been delivered from. They were looking back at their bondage and preferring it over the deliverance of the Lord. Looking back led them into temptation, which then led them to test the patience of the Lord. He had delivered them through signs and wonders, and he had led them out of bondage. And even after all of that, they couldn't see the reality of their spiritual deliverance. They just continued to look back at bondage fondly. And he's using, Paul is using this example to warn the Corinthian church, do not look fondly back at your bondage. You are treading on thin ice, and this could lead you into idolatry. <laughs> you don't want any part of that. He's, he's trying to show them that through this story. Going back to the previous verses from 1 Corinthians, it says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Um, so the commentary on what was happening in the Corinthian church um, there's a little quote about it from Ellicott's commentary that I thought really summed it up well. It says, Christians called forth from a more deadly bondage, a more deadly bondage than what Israel was delivered from, into a more glorious liberty, into the liberty of Christ, are in like peril. Let the one who thinks that he stands secure take great heed lest he fall. The murmuring against their apostolic teachers the longing to go so far as they could in indulgence without committing actual sin were terribly significant indications in the Corinthian church. When we feel ourselves beginning to dislike those who warn us against sin, and when we find ourselves measuring with minute measures what is smallest distance that we can place between ourselves and some desired object of indulgence without actually sinning, then let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Wow, that is a stern warning. That's a stern warning. I mean, that's like a trembling warning. It's a big deal. So the, the tone shifts here because Paul knows that he's given a very firm warning. So much so that people might say, however could we resist? We are in such peril. How are we going to make it out? He goes on to say, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. So we're switching from warning to encouragement. 
The temptation spoken of here is what is common to man due to his human state. And others have been through the same. They've been through the same temptation. And these are temptations that man is able to overcome by God's grace. And others have gone before us, and we've seen them overcome that. So it's not impossible. There's no way that it could be impossible and God still be true. God in his sovereignty is sure that no circumstances arise to block every way of escape. He makes sure of that. He makes the way possible, but we have to choose to walk in it. Again, it comes back to that choice. We have to choose to walk in it. 2 Peter 2 verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So I just wanted to leave you with these last couple verses here. There we go. So when you experience temptation, or when you are in a trial, because when you're in a trial, when you're undergoing that, you tend to be more vulnerable. You tend to want to look for your own way of escape. When you are bearing up under that, here's a couple of good things to meditate on to help you cleave to the Lord and remember who you belong to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-19. through 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20, through 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. <laughs> Out of all of those, one thing that I just try to carry around and apply to myself is you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Whatever you do, remember that. <laughs> Always remember that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, it is our desire that we honor you in everything that we do. We want to glorify you in everything that we do. We submit our lives to you, Lord. When we're in hardship, we undergo it as discipline, Lord. We submit to you so that we may share in your holiness. We trust you and we believe you, Lord, and we just want to say that we will seek only you when we are in those positions, Lord, when things are difficult. We will seek your face and your wisdom, Lord. And we will trust you. We will trust in your sufficient grace for us, no matter what our circumstances are. We will trust in your wisdom, no matter what things look like. And we believe you in those situations, Lord. We believe you in those times. Help us not to forget whose we are and that we were bought with a price. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.